This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. <clears throat> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Okay, so let me just, because I also don't entirely know what's going on. Uh, I'm Lulu Miller. I'm Latif Nasser. And we also have with us. Yeah. Producer Matt Kilty. Um, we have three different pitches. Yeah, we're going to... You guys Wow, the, we're doing three different things? Yeah, but yeah. mine's very little. But I need... You got to leave me 15 minutes at 15 minutes. Okay, and then... Okay, a little context. Uh, a, a while back, the three of us found ourselves in a studio together because our editor, Soren, he knew that we were independently working on these three different stories. Is, is oh, so you don't like, know that... Lulu, you do know the stories or you don't no, know the stories? No, I don't. No, and unbeknownst to us at the time, he decided that each of our stories pitted chaos versus order in a way that could upend some of our deepest beliefs about how life works. Yeah. And so he wanted to just get us in the ring together. It's a cage match. It's a story cage match. Yeah. And we'll get to all that. But uh, should I start? Yeah. Uh, Latif has got story number one. All right. Okay. So we're starting at the, the University of Rostock. In Germany. Yeah, the story started here in Rostock. With this ecology professor named Hendrik Schubert. Did I pronounce that right? Absolutely great. You got it. So back in the early 80s, Hendrik finishes his undergrad degree in ecology at Rostock, studies in a couple different departments there, goes on to teach for a while at a different university. And when by chance I got the professorship here in Rostock in my former department. He came back home. It was really by chance I never dreamed of. But the job was department chair. So basically now he was going to be the boss of his former teachers. Yes. Awkward. Yeah. It's kind of a funny dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, one day he walks into this temperature-controlled lab that they have there, and he sees one of his old professors. A uh, mentor of mine, Reinhard. Reinhard Herkloss. Yeah, my name is Reinhard Herkloss. And, and right next to Reinhard, he also sees, much to his surprise... I saw this barrel. A bright blue... 100-liter barrel. Yeah, my barrel for my experiments. And Hendrik, Hendrik knew this barrel. When I was still a student and we had a practical course where we... Because as an undergrad, he had done this experiment with Reinhardt where they had filled these barrels full of seawater. Breakish water from a lagoon of the Baltic Sea called... And they were tweaking the nutrient levels just to watch how it would affect the, you know, tiny microorganisms living in the water. Like copper poles, yeah. zooplankton. But it was a simple little experiment that had only lasted for two weeks. And and now, more, you know, a decade later, Reinhardt still had that barrel, you know, just sitting there. So I asked Reinhardt, hey, what are you what are you doing with this? And he told me. So Reinhardt then tells him the story. 
So I can go back to the late 80s. So a few months after the initial experiment in 1989, something unthinkable happened. The big jump in history. The Berlin Wall fell. The Berlin Wall fell. Rostock was in East Germany. And all of a sudden, it just felt like overnight, everything changed. The currency changed. The head of state changed. The university changed its name, its curriculum. Like, all these very specific things about Reinhardt's day-to-day life all of a sudden just changed. Yeah, it's... The cultural shock. Cut to six months later, June 1990. Uh, in all the chaos, Reinhardt had totally forgotten about the barrels until one day, a colleague of his in his department wanted to do a different experiment and so came to him and was like, hey, could you, it was just bugging him, like, could you just get those barrels out of there? I was asked to, to remove these barrels for, for their own experiment. So he does it one by one. So he like takes the one, he like shimmies it over, he dumps it out. Empty the water and wash out the sediment. Takes the other one. So he started doing that. And then he gets to the control barrel, which is the one in the experiment that they, you know, they had done nothing to. It was just sitting there under a light source, right? It was, uh, as a comparison for the other barrels where they were tweaking things. Okay. And like for some reason, he's about to tip it over and then he stops himself. And he's like, you know what? Let me just, like, take a little sample of this and look under a microscope and see what's what's actually, like, in this barrel. Is there still life in it or is it not in it? And so he looks at it and he's totally dumbstruck by what he sees. A sample filled with many, many organisms, with zooplankton and algae and so on. I mean, he hadn't even touched this thing in months. Nobody had. I, I thought that there will be nothing, just more or less dead. But when he looks, he sees that it's it's not just alive, it's thriving. There's like tons of different species. So there are phytoplankton. These are like little plants and a lot of them are green. Zooplankton, which are basically like the animal-y type of plankton, some of which eat the phytoplankton, some of which eat the other zooplankton. And then there are bacteria, which are basically like the equivalent of the mushrooms or the whatever that are that are recycling the whole system. Unwittingly, he had created a little natural world. Quick question of clarification. Yeah, did he create it or did he just preserve it? Yeah. I think it's like a semantic thing. <laughs> that's, my, that's, that's what I love. Uh, like, like, sure. So, so maybe he didn't create it, but he, he like... He sustained he, it. He didn't sustain it because he didn't touch it. It just happened. It's like a thimble of ocean that he got and somehow this thimble of ocean is continuing to live. Okay. Cool. Okay. So also when he sees that it's alive, part of the other reason that it excites him is that at that time in the 80s and 90s, there was this kind of open question in the field of ecology about the natural course of an ecosystem. And I'm kind of like bastardizing the question in a way that I understand it. So like, but but this is basically, I think what it is. If you could just give an ecosystem the basic things it needs, right? Like sunlight and space and, and whatever. Um, but there were no humans around to mess with it. You know, no comets, no earthquakes, no, no no outside confounding factors. What would happen? What would that ecosystem do? Huh. Cool. Okay. And there's sort of two options here. You know, like it, it might be that all the creatures get, you know, to some certain population level and and with a bit of eating one another and more being born over here. And, and then it basically stabilizes, you know, be, beyond the day-to-day up and downs. It basically is like a line in the end. Like a never-ending line of harmony. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe would you see like 
more like a cycle. Like there, there would be more of one thing for a while and it would dominate for a while, but then it sort of crashes and because there's not enough of another thing for it to eat and then another thing takes over. And then instead of like, like a, so in, in this case, instead of like a line, what you have is a circle. A circle of life. That's right. That's right. It's what Mufasa says in The Lion King. The circle of life. That's the song, right? Yeah. So two options, line or circle, which are kind of just two flavors of balance. The prevailing view was the, when they are left alone, the nature tend to get balanced. But here, in this barrel, Reinhardt thought, I have the perfect opportunity to answer this question. I've got an ecosystem that's totally untouched by humans. And the, the species in that ecosystem are born, reproduce, and die at a super quick clip. So in just a few months' time, I'll be able to see, like, hundreds of generations worth of transformation. And so he starts tracking how the various species are doing. Week after week, he's like interrupting Christmas with his family because he's like, I gotta go, sorry. Looking at and scrutinizing like a glass of water over and over and over again. And everyone's like, this is the most boring thing. Like even his colleagues who are like scientists who do boring go other stuff. I gotta go check my stale water. <laughs> exactly. They are all like, this is like, they're like, what even is this experiment? But from another way, it's like, he is a god overseeing a tiny universe where he is watching it and it's like generations are passing in effectively the blink of an eye for him. And he's watching this like very dramatic story unfolding. But he's trying to figure out like what exactly is the shape of it? Like what is the plot? He's like, am I in a suspense movie? Am I in an apocalypse? That's exactly what's happening. And he can't figure it out because what he is seeing it's like a microbial Game of Thrones or something that he's like watching. Like the species that are there, they're booming, they're crashing. One type of creature could be the dominant species in the barrel for, for hundreds of generations. And then just, it's a blip from then on. Like it just crashes and then it never comes back. It's like Rome rises, things are gonna be on top of the world forever. And then yeah. the barbarians come in and are like, oh, hell no, it's Germany now. Right, okay. right, right. And he watches this play out in this barrel for over <laughs> six years, waiting for the harmony. Oh. And he just never... It never came? It never came. No line, no circle. In this nutshell of a small ecosystem, nature is... Chaos, chaos, chaos. What Reinhardt had discovered in this barrel was that this tiny ecosystem, when left to its own devices, was completely chaotic. So what does that mean mean? Like, is that saying it's just booming and busting at random? Or does that mean... Well, so... First of all, maybe I should tell you a little bit about chaos. Please. Because, because for most of the people, chaos is just total random, but uh, is not. This is Elisa Beninka. I'm Elisa Beninka, and I'm a theoretical ecologist. Reinhardt brought her in to analyze his data, and, and she says the way to think about chaos is not whether it's random or not, but to what extent we can predict what's going to happen. So actually, a chaos is a system which is high predictability on the short run, but cannot be predicted in the long term. And the weather is actually the best example for mm. that. 
meteorologists can do forecasts up to two weeks. After that, they're no better than you or I trying to predict the weather. Um, and in the case of this barrel... Species could be predictable for around 15, 30 days. And after that, you couldn't know who is going to be in advantage. Huh. So it, it, it's not like, you know, things are just happening completely randomly for no reason whatsoever. It's, it's just that we, like... Like, it's beyond us to see why things are happening or, or, or what's going to happen, which to Reinhardt, you know, suggested there's no line. There's no circle. Like, harmonious, natural balance, that's all BS. Like, like at any moment, the natural equivalent of the Berlin Wall could fall and, and, and just upend the whole system. He told me, I never have seen a stable state. So when Hendrik, yeah, yeah. the student-turned-department chair, ran into Reinhardt and his barrel, Reinhardt told him about all of this data he collected. Sometimes I had a stable state for some weeks or even months, but then suddenly the system shifted again yeah. and I decided to follow up. And then with you know the help of Elisa and others, Reinhardt gets his work published in Nature. And according to Hendrik... There was this immediate blowback from other, some other ecologists. Yes. Because it sort of thumbed its nose at this whole field of study. Like, if this is true, why should we do any research anymore? If we're trying to bring a system back to order and you're saying there's no such order to begin with, what the hell are we even doing? Well, if there is chaos in nature, why do we do restoration or whatever? But, you know, Hendrik, he was also skeptical of the result for, for, you know, scientific reason. Because, you know, even if Reinhardt found chaos inside this one barrel... It doesn't mean that chaos is something mandatory. He yeah. showed that there might be chaos. Hendrik is like, I'm, I'm, I'm redoing this whole thing. <laughs> really? Let's see what happens. So this time he repeats the experiment. Similar setup and improved setup. Try to control for all possible variability. To get our best, let's say... And for a year, twice, with eight barrels this time, they scoop and measure, scoop and measure, scoop and measure, etc. What did you, what did you and your colleagues find? We had signs of chaos in some of the vessels and in some of the compartments tested. So not all eight. Not all, and not always the same. Like when there was chaos, it was playing out in different ways in the different barrels, which provides me at least with a little sigh of relief because in some ways it's saying, like, like we still don't know. Or, or is it just now like a multiverse of chaos where we can't even tell if it's going to be chaotic or when it's going to be chaotic? Like I, I just see deeper, deeper, deeper chaos, which, I, you know, which fine, I'm okay with. Really? Yeah. For me, yeah. it was for me reading about this study. I found it personally. I found it quite jarring. I, I think you really, I really wanted there to be like a hidden order to everything that is not about us, that has nothing to do with us, where things make sense. Um, and and for that not to be there, I think is very unsettling. Like when we do conservation or restoration or whatever, it, it just feels like you'd be throwing your hands up. My and thought like, was like, if the order is gone, if there is no guaranteed harmony, that actually makes conservation work even more important. It's like if we don't intervene and protect the order, 
it's not guaranteed. Who cares about your choices if it's chaos anyway? If it's if because there are things that are beyond are your control that are gonna that are gonna happen, screw it all anyway. It's like the idea of the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I don't think it does, which is terrifying. So what you you have to fabricate a form of justice, and yeah, there's it, well, a pandemic. Well, wait, can I interrupt you? Yeah. Okay, write that version of The Lion King. See how many kids go to see that. Okay. Ready? <laughs> yeah, do it. Go, make <laughs> right the song. Here. Elton John, go for it. Okay. Numanaya singing Numanaya. I'm very Numanaya excited to hear what's going next Numanaya. year. <laughs> Simba, based on the work as, as, as confirmed by Reinhardt, there is no delicate harmony awaiting you. And if you don't choose wisely and show respect to your fellow creatures and plants and bacteria and fungi, the everything will die. The balance is not delicate. The balance is not there at all. <laughs> and the song is not the circle of life. It's the giant abyss of no promises vortex of life. But then why are we going to watch any of the rest of the movie? Like, even if you're a Lion King... Your mm -hmm. Lion Kingdom is going to, like the Roman Empire, it's going to crumble and fall. Right. And like, who who cares? Oh, I sh for sure think that's coming. I think we're probably out of here pretty soon. But <laughs> let's make it decent for the other humans and creatures that will get to live in the short future. <laughs> sure. Yes. Okay. So that was round one of our chaos off. Yeah, so we're going to take a quick break and you can use that time to really ruminate on whether you believe chaos is totally empowering and great. Or has let all the air out of your spiritual <laughs> balloon. Um, uh, <laughs> and then when we come back, uh, round two, we've got another uh, Smackdown Orderverse Chaos coming up from producer Matt Kilty. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Lulu. Latif, Radio Lab. And we're back. 
with Matt. Okay, so my turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I see how these things go together because lots of lots of has uh, this little barrel ecosystem that was in chaos, which is not totally random, but is like a weird, wildly fluctuating thing. Right. But I have a story that kind of like steps that up. Because we found a part of life, you could argue the most important part, where it looks like things are actually fully, completely random. Uh And I say we because— Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Heather, we can hear and see you. I reported this story out with our contributing editor, Heather Racky. Yes, yes, yes. And Heather actually first heard this story from this guy, Chris Hoff. Thank you, Heather. Who's— a philosopher of science at Case Western Reserve University. Yeah. Chris, how did we come to the story? You kind of, you wrote me an email and said... I have a great story for you. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I got a hell of a tale. Exactly. Crap in your seatbelt. <laughs> okay, so we're going back in time to some big collars. Cool music. Back to late 60s, early 70s, and to this guy. Professor Gold. The floor is yours. Stephen J. Gould. I want to start by presenting the basic argument in a somewhat abstract form. Maybe you've heard of him. Darwin, in fact, never said that. He oh, yeah. Oh, he's the greatest. He's one of the best science writers of all time. In his new book, Full House. Yeah, he wrote some big deal books. Mismeasure of Man is one. Right. Wrote a lot about evolution. The fundamental principles of Darwinian theory. A lot about the history of science. But before Gould was a public thinker, he was just a young man who really loved fossils he had like the kind of classic moment where his dad took him to the american museum of natural history i was four or five to haul dinosaurs he sees the t-rex i remember standing under the tyrannosaurus and a man sneezed (laughs) i thought the tyrannosaurus had come to life was about to devour me but uh, after that moment of fear i just let fascination creep in he was, like, absolutely hooked. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cute. That's his And Gould says, after that moment, this fascination with fossils just started to unlock all these questions. Questions like, why are we here on this Earth? What are we related to? How is the Earth built? What has its history been through time? What's been the pageant of change over this immense span of years? So Gould felt himself drawn to the field of paleontology. The study of fossils. But that actually became kind of a problem for him. Because paleontology was not really seen as, like, a real science. You don't really get to answer big, fun questions in paleontology. You kind of look at a lot of fossils. Yeah, Heather, you described it as stamp collecting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is the problem that Gould was attempting to confront. You know, if we're going to survive as a science, we need to find a way of contributing answers to important questions. So in 1967, Gould gets his PhD. And he's immediately hired at Harvard. And then one day... This guy, Tom Schopf, he's a paleontologist at the University of Chicago. Called up Gould, said he'd read some of his research, and he'd been wondering... If they could do anything really cool, basically, with computers and the fossil record. And Gould's like, oh, that could be something. So the fossil record is like everything we humans know about what existed before us. It's what allowed us to start thinking about evolution. It kind of became the foundation for Darwin. And for this guy, Schaff, he thought, well, maybe there's actually still something in there. And we could use these new powerful machines to pull it out and start answering some big, important questions. Why are we here on this earth? And so Gould... Was just like, yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's set the scene. It's like 1972... Shop, 
Gould. Right. And and they invite this guy, Dave Raup. Another paleontologist. Who had done these really cool studies. Looking at seashells and geometry. And then there's this fourth guy, Dan Simberloff. An ecologist who was really into, you know, mathematical modeling. So we got three paleontologists. And an ecologist. By the, by the way, it sounds like a beautiful beginning to a joke. <laughs> Three paleontologists, an ecologist, and a computer walk into a bar. Yeah. Okay. It's the winter of 1972. These four guys go up to Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Where there's this sort of holy grail with fossil records. This fossil record of marine life. Marine invertebrates. What are we even talking about? Like shellfish or what? Yeah. Mollusks. Yeah, mollusks. Ammonites. Oh, sure. Trilobites. Trilobites. Um, yeah, I mean... Your various bites. Yeah, stuff on the seafloor. And in this book for each species, it basically has... Where this first appears in the fossil record, where it disappears in the fossil record. So they grab this book, they go to a house somebody had. And then they go to the computer. Take their big book out, they start entering all the data. Uh-huh. And then they're like... Okay. What next? I mean, the problem... Okay, like... A computer needs, like, you can't just say, computer, make a cool thing. You have to ask a computer a question. And you get the sense that they just did not know what question to ask the computer. <laughs> they didn't have a good question to answer that evolutionary theorists would care about. So, like, for five days, they don't know what to do. And then right before, it's like the last day, Ralph is like, what if we have the computer simulate evolution at random. And why would they do that? Well, because evolution, you know... is not a random process. Right. Darwin established it's like it's small incremental change over long periods of time. But, it, but it's not just that, right? Oh. It favors certain uh, things. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it favors, like, adaptive traits. Right, the, the fittest survive. Yes. And if you're not fit... You just die. You get wiped off the face of the earth because the strongest push you off. Because they're better suited for the Right, niche. they're better than you. Yeah, right. What a bunch of jerks. Way of the world. But, so all they had was this really simple question. Right. If things were just happening by chance, what would we see? So what they do is they make a computer program, and they start with, let's say they start with a species in this program. They don't give that species any definable characteristics, anything like that. It's just this nondescript species. Can you just name the species just because? Yeah, helps let's me? call it. Let's call it Bloop. Okay, Bloop. It's just this Bloop, blah, Bloop. Mm -hmm. And then they program the computer so that at just it's an arbitrary number. It's like let's say a hundred years, hundred years of Bloop living. The computer's like, okay, I now assign all of you Bloops one of three things at random. So thing number one could be nothing happens to the bloops. The bloops just get to keep on living, go through to the next round. Mm -hmm. So that's one option. Or the computer could pick number two, which is a little tweak to bloop. And from bloop, you get... Bleep. 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 Whole new species. So it's just bloops. Bleep. 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 Then it's bloops and bleeps. Yeah. Bleep, bleep, bleep. And they could just, now they could go forward and they can go to the next stage. So number one is nothing happens. You move on. Number two, you can change, evolve, speciate. Or the third thing that can happen huh? is... Bye-bye, huh? bloop, 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 bloop. Dead. Extinct. <laughs> Dead. Forever. Bye-bye, bloop. R.I.P. So that's it. One, two, three. Live, Live die, die, or speciate. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Yeah, exactly. And the computer's picking them... At random. Okay. 
So they produce these simulations. Running bloop after bloop through this program. Over millions of years. And then they go to the computer, they like print it out, and all of a sudden they see something pretty bananas. Which is the simulations that they produced looked remarkably like the actual fossil record. Wait, what is that? I can I can share a screen. Chris showed us these graphs. Okay, so this is a graph of the actual fossil record. For the sake of this, just imagine tree of life sort of evolution, you know, image. And you can see, okay, mollusks, they start here, they die here, and trilobites, they start here, die there. And then Chris showed us the graphs of these simulations. You see this one over here? Oh. Whoa. Basically, if you were to zoom in on these branches, you'd see at the end of each of the branches, the extinction points of the species. And the ones from the computer are the exact same as the ones from the fossil record. So, like, bloops and bleeps, are going extinct just like trilobites went extinct, just like ammonites went extinct. Hmm. Um, so for me, it's like, I'm like, huh, wow, yeah, these do look similar, but I'm like, so what? Yeah, <laughs> so okay. What? So what? So I think well, the key here is kind of seeing the resemblance that these randomly simulated groups bear to real groups, and then remembering that these are just going extinct randomly, whereas we thought these were going extinct through natural selection. That is wild. So it's like it's just like computer programming equals life. Itself. Computer programming of, of nothing but chance and randomness, which is totally counter to like the sort of order of natural selection. Mm. So natural selection would be like you've got a bird with a like awesome beak and cool eyes and it's like can fly like a baller and then there's like a lesser bird that's kind of a weenie bird and it's got like me it can't see in three dimensions and it's like not good at sports it's like basically I'm, this is heather bird but in this scenario in like the darwinian idea it's like athlete bird with its great eyes its great wings wins the the evolutionary battle heather bird goes extinct Weenie birds as a kind of bird, as a species, cease to exist. But what these computer simulations were showing is that extinction doesn't work that way. And that actually Heather Weenie bird and super athlete bird have equal chance of not necessarily thriving, but like existing. So, so it's like if those two species were born at the same time, weenie bird and athlete bird... <laughs> It's up to chance which one would survive longer than the other one. Right. So fitness might explain why one species does better than another. But what they saw suggests that when it comes to extinction, it's not fitness or out-competing one another. It's just random. But it's, it's a little hard mm, to get your I, mind around. But wait, I, but I have a question. Going back to that marine, you know, there in Woods Hole, what did they all, do we know what they thought at that yeah. moment? Yeah, we do. Well, they, okay. I mean, they, they, were, they were all... Totally shocked. Yeah, like the way Crystal does the way he heard it is basically... When, you know, the printouts come out, they're like, oh my God. <laughs> also, like we should say, it's at this point that we got Chris a better microphone. This is a mic gain of eight. <laughs> yeah, Chris, you sound great. <laughs> Anyways, but basically, like they were kind of freaked out because the idea is like, if Darwin can't explain why things go extinct, then the question is, why do things go extinct? Like, is it just 
chance and randomness. And that question would send the three of them off in very different directions. So Gould, for Gould, he actually, this was mostly just like a big huzzah moment. Because paleontology had sort of knocked down a piece of Darwin and put forward this new question. Yeah, exactly. And as Chris put it... It put paleontology at the high table. But Gould, Gould kind of leaves extinction behind. It goes back to what I said at the very beginning, that we want to know why we're here. And he starts using randomness and chance to look at things like diversity and adaptation. And to a large extent, it, it is a grand-scale accident that we're here. Evolution has oddly contingent pathways. It would never run the same way twice. And he starts writing all sorts of books. He becomes kind of like famous Stephen Jay Gould. But then Raup, the guy who came up with the question to ask computer, he becomes obsessed with extinction. And stays on that track for the rest of his professional career. He ends up writing this book, which I, I have right here. Extinction, bad genes or bad luck? Oh, question mark. <laughs> and to Raup, the answer was it's both. Like you can't discount fitness but when it comes to extinction, there's so much other stuff happening. The climate is changing or an asteroid hits Earth. Sea levels can rise and fall drastically. Like all of that stuff is outside of your control. You could sort of die at any moment. So he sort of charts this middle ground view, which is probably how Gould saw it too. But then you have Tom Schopf, the guy who started the whole project, and he just goes full randomness. Yeah, I mean, he, the impression that I get was like, Pretty much from the word go, he was like, randomness is is the order. Schopf developed this idea called species as particles. Species as particles in space and time. He believed that if extinction is truly random, then as a whole, species are sort of indistinct. Like they have no real differences between one another. That there are no like better or worse. The way he puts it... Um, there's no inferior or superior beings. There's just ones that survive and ones that don't. Schopf began writing a book trying to flush out this theory. But in 1984, at the age of 44, he was in Texas doing field work with students and he died suddenly of a heart attack. While reporting this story, we would we talked to some paleontologists and we're like, well, like who, like, do we know? Is it sort of like the route bad genes, bad luck? Is it the shop total randomness? Like, what is, what drives extinction? And the answer we got is that we we still don't know. Like, we still haven't answered the question they sort of uncovered with this computer in Woods Hole. Well, I gotta say, I'm rooting for shop. <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't matter how quote-unquote fit or muscly or well-honed or sleek our model is, that doesn't relate to how long we're going to, like, hang around on Earth. It means, in a very real way, like, we're all equally good. Mm. And for me, it creaks open all this possibility that might be waiting behind things that we look at and deem unfit or deformed or weenie bird-esque. Like, it, it gives it gives all this—it it returns all this possibility that gives me a sense of, like, thrill— like, it makes me want to look at the things I'm discounting, you know? Totally. I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure. Because, okay, so to me, like, it's like, it's, it's this, right? Like, let's say we, we used to have this idea of fitness where it's like, okay, there are the cool kids who are fit and they, 
in the old mentality to be like, yeah, like this is like, we're, we're team human. There's some people that get picked first for team human who are the ones who are helping us survive. And some people who get picked last for team human who are like us. But then this, it seems like this, if it's like, oh, okay, your survival actually, even the fittest people, like they're not necessarily helping you survive. Those fitting, those super fit characteristics, like you could still get hit by a bus and like, that's the way they go. So it's not like, oh, now all the people who were picked last on the team, like they have the same chances of survival. But it's not like the the people who were picked last, they don't they aren't now brought up to the team of the people who were picked first. It's like the people who were picked first are now brought down to the level of the rest of us where any of us But that's the same thing. No, no, no. This is what I when Lulu was talking, I'm like, no, it's it's just a matter of perspective. And it's like everything has the same value, which means it's like wonderful and beautiful, or everything has the same value, which is it has no value. It's pointless and defeated. Yeah. Right. But that's kind of awesome. That's great. And it's great. Yeah. And you can sit you can sit in either reality and and bask in that. It's just up to you which one you want to bask in. Yeah. Did you want to reflect, Matt, about how it had changed you? No. Yeah, do it. Do it. I want that. Well, I mean, the thing, the only thing I would say is that like one one of the things we learned when reporting the story is that ninety nine point nine percent of all things that have ever existed on earth have gone extinct. <laughs> basically, basically everything that's ever lived has eventually died. Whether or not like, and it seems like chance is a big part of that, but we don't fully know, but whatever they, everything dies. And I sort of maybe naively always existed with this thought that like we as species are progressing towards something like some sort of better world eventually for us and i don't know other species and kind of really believed in the idea that like in some way your actions the actions that you take the things that you do are rewarded in some way to continue to strive towards something better and instead in doing this reporting it's like oh no 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 you your kind and every other kind eventually just gets wiped off the face of the earth you have no foresight. You don't know it's coming. It just happens. And not only does it just happen, but like in the long run, it happens to almost everything. And I guess in some way I'm like, I it just feels deeply nihilistic. And I'm kind of like, well, what, what are we doing here? I got us. This is making me think of a song for The Shape. A song with The Shape? I was like, okay, if it's a circle, yours is telling us it's like, it's the cliff of life, <laughs> and we're all gonna die. Who knows where and where? So why even try? Just eat some French fry. When we come back, we're gonna take the chaos question all the way back. To the beginning. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. 
A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. On this week's On the Media, does the rise of X signal the fall of traditional right-wing outlets? You don't have to have this website and a link that people have to click on. You can just say stuff and you can get attention. You know, you don't need to be Breitbart to do that anymore. Also, what does decolonization really mean? On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. For our final round of this order versus chaos throwdown, just to stir the pot or the barrel a little bit, I have with me a special guest who is going to... In person, you have a special guest? Yep. They're going to beam in now. They're beaming in? They're beaming in. So just wait. They're coming. Oh, my gosh. They're coming. Oh, it's good. Hi, everyone. I'm back. And all is right in the world now. Uh, so Candace Wong is our former intern, and she is the one who got us into this final mess when she told me that we should take a closer look at how it all began. Mm. Do you guys have a sort of thing you think about when you think of the origin of life? Sure. In the ocean? Primordial ooze? It's like cauldrons of heat. Heather, did you just say primordial ooze? Yeah, primordial ooze. Oh, isn't it soup? Is that... Uh, That's how I remember it. The primordial soup. (laughs) Maybe that's right. (laughs) So it's this idea that life somehow emerged out of this crazy chaotic soup of chemicals, which I remembered learning about in the ninth grade. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I even learned about it on this very show a few times. Um, Yeah, I remember that. But apparently the reason that the primordial soup theory is so widespread all goes back to one singular experiment done in 1952. That involves a soup? bowl of soup, can of soup. Please tell me. Barrel of water? A, a cauldron. It involves a cauldron, but it's kind of barrel-esque. <laughs> or like a glass flask or something. Yeah. So, Candace, okay, tell us about the experiment and, and who, who our guy was. Okay, so our guy is Stanley Miller, this grad student in 1952 in Chicago. Um, and I'm looking at Stanley Miller. Oh, oh, there's a picture. Should we look at it? Like what you see? <laughs> Somebody took a sexy pic of him. They did. It's like they I really... see Bill Nye, the science guy with no hair, fondling a globe full of lightning. This is the sexy photo you're talking about. Yeah, it's kind of. <laughs> 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 I kind of feel like, come on. I mean, I think oh sexy is too much. It's too yeah. much. But look at he's yeah. got swagger. He's got mm-hmm. he's got science swag. <laughs> anyway, Candace, sorry. Please go on. Yeah. So he's looking for an experiment to do. Um, and thought of this old theory from 1920s, basically that primordial soup theory that we just talked about. The theory had been floating around, but it had never been tested. Yeah, and so Stanley was like, okay, I'm going to test this out. He took his little cauldron, filled it with all these gases. There's like ammonia, hydrogen, methane, all those things that people thought were in the early atmosphere. And then he was like, okay, I'm going to create a little storm. And he zapped it. Like a bolt of the... Early Earth's lightning. Yeah, lightning, basically. And he's watching the cauldron for only a day, and then he finds that it starts turning a little pinkish. And he's like, oh my goodness, like, is there something going on here? 
And then a week later, it turns deep red, turbid red. Mm, Like smoky red? Yeah, it's like rusty blood red water that's collecting at the bottom. Oh, the water's becoming red. I see, I see. Yeah. So it is kind of like a like red soup at the bottom. So he pulls this red borscht out of the cauldron and he looks to see what's in there. And he finds... Amino acids. Amino freaking acids. Wow. <laughs> the stuff of life. So like, does anyone know... What an amino acid is. The ingredients of DNA, right? Like well, it's like that's no, the... but it is the ingredients of pretty much everything else in the cell. So the little motors and enzymes and all the stuff that actually makes a cell work. Yes. Amino acids, the building blocks of life. So it was a kind of a almost a meme as an experiment. It's a beautiful experiment. So this is Nick Lane. Professor of evolutionary biochemistry at University College London. And he says that as beautiful and scientifically fantastic as Miller's experiment was, the idea that it explains the origin of life is a bit of a leap. You know, going back to Frankenstein, the idea that you have electricity and lightning and you you zap things and they come to life, they spring to life, and all you need is another lightning strike and lo and behold... You know, fast forward four billion years and we've got humans. You know, if if, if that doesn't persuade a 13-year-old, well, good, because it doesn't persuade me either. Huh. Why not? Like, what's wrong with that? Well, Nick says, you know, amino acids are great and all, but... It's another 10 or 12 steps to make something living. To make an actual living thing that can make copies of itself, you need RNA and DNA and a cell membrane and all the intricate goodies inside. This is asking a lot of spontaneous chemistry that all of these steps should just happen without anything to direct it. How do you get from just a bunch of ingredients in a soup to like very structured, complicated life? That's a very, very um, far um, gap to jump. I mean, Miller himself worried about this during his lifetime. Yeah, but the most famous critic of this whole primordial soup idea was actually Francis Crick. As in the guy who helped discover a little thing called DNA. Nobel Prize winner Francis Crick published an extraordinary book called Life Itself, uh, in which he argues from a scientific point of view that life could not have got started on this planet. So this is a snippet from a call-in radio show where they are discussing what Francis Crick saw as a far more logical explanation of how life began. To cut a long story short, he suggested it was sent here by an alien civilization from the other side of the universe. Yes, Francis Crick proposed what he called directed panspermia, which is to say some alien civilization put some cells, some bacterial cells on a rocket and crashed it on the Earth. Uh, One of those spaceships crashed into the early Earth. Its cargo of bacteria spilled out and eventually became us. And that's honestly how Francis Crick, the Nobel Prize winner, saw the beginning of life on this planet. Yeah, seems more feasible than than a glass cauldron. Than a lightning bolt. Than a lightning bolt. I mean, my immediate reaction is that it's bonkers. But there's a, a, a kind of less extreme but more real version of that, which is... Um, that organic molecules can form in space and will be delivered to Earth on meteorites. And, and that's definitely true. That does happen. There's no question about that. What? Um, but if okay. we meteorite... Wait, wait. We got to... St- <laughs> okay, the yes. resident person who knows less here. I mean, 
What? Well, plenty of amino acids, the same amino acids that Stanley Miller had produced, that all of those have been found and more. Um, From space? In space, yes. How do you? How are they found? Uh, because they arrive on meteorites, or, or people have t- occasionally taken samples of things, but mostly from from meteorites. And Nick says it's not just amino acids. Bits and pieces of the building blocks of DNA have been found there as well. That's wild. Yes, it's amazing that this cosmic chemistry happens and is delivered to the Earth. And so maybe they had something to do with the origin of life. Yes, maybe, maybe, but for Nick. As a full way to explain the origin of life, that's still... You know, that, that's two steps too far. Hmm. Even if amino acids or DNA apparently are always raining down from the sky, you still have those 12 other steps he mentioned. How do you get it to do the things that cells do, which is to say grow, divide, and copy itself? And so his best guess for how or rather where life began, and he's scientific, he's like, this is just my guess, I'm not saying it is, is a particularly hellish spot that looks very not conducive to life. I personally think life started in deep sea hydrothermal vents. You can get these vents anywhere. Some of them can be very deep, five or six kilometers down. Way beneath the surface of the water, far from any sunlight, where the heat from inside the earth is churning up and creating these craggy rock structures. They can be beautiful spires, pinnacles of rock, 60 meters tall. I mean, I like to think of them as Gothic cathedrals or something. They're they're full of little details, little doodles of rock. They're beautiful things to look at. (laughs) And according to Nick, they've got the goods. They've got the materials, the right chemicals, methane and carbon and hydrogen are swirling around in the water. They've got the energy source, not lightning, but this constant churn of the Earth's heat. But finally, what he thinks make them really special is their structure. The amazing thing about these vents is they they mimic the structure of cells in that it's kind of a round space with a wall around it. Um, and, and you can think of a cell as a kind of a, a, a bag of solution with, a, with a, a membrane around it. And because you've got the materials, the constant churning energy, and these rock walls that kind of force everything together. That's making these gases react together to form organic molecules, which are forming inside the pores themselves. They will form spontaneously in, in this kind of environment into what we call protocells a little bit optimistically maybe, but effectively a membrane around a bag of water uh, mm. with some stuff inside. Huh. It's like the, the matter and, and magic you need to make life is lush there. It's like you got it all. Yes. It's got the right materials and it's got the structure. And I think that's what's been missing from the chemistry and it's what's missing from the soup and it's what's missing from you know delivery of organic molecules from space by panspermia. It ends up in a soup. How does that soup form structure? Well, the Earth itself forms the structure for you in the first place in in these hydrothermal vents. There is a beautiful link between the geology of the planet with active volcanic systems and active turnover of the surface of the planet and 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 the bottom of the oceans and the way that living cells work. It's as if a living planet gives rise to mm. living cells, which have the same structure. They're like they're both, both the planet and the cell is a little bit like a battery. It's got a positive charge outside, a oh. negative charge inside, a, a, a membrane surrounding it, and they're both they're both like that. And there's a, there's a lovely lovely sense of continuity that a planet gives rise to living cells. Wow, that is very 
cool. Uh, but Lulu, like, like you've been, you've been championing chaos this whole time, and now you're serving up a story that's like this. To me, this is like this is order. Like you're well, putting order right back at the beginning of it all. Oh, well, that's interesting. I mean, what like, I, like that? Yeah, the, the yeah, right. Like the soup or the panspermia are both like very chaotic. Like some random thing just fell to earth, or a random lightning bolt hit a, a random you know piece of gas at the right time. Like like those are pretty chaotic. But but if it's like oh look, there's this chimney that was being built, and there are a, a whole bunch of them, and they have the exactly right gradient and the right this and the right that. Like then. It's a very and like orderly the cell thing. is a tiny planet. Yeah. Hmm, I mm, guess. I mean, yeah. I was seeing Nick's explanation as yet another loss. Yeah. You know, he's pointing out that our beginning, even our scientific beginning, isn't as clean of a story as we thought. You know, there was no lightning strike, no clear moment where it all began. Just this slow and like bad breath out of a vent, churning, clumsy mix of chemicals in a dark dank pit. To me, that that rips away the last shred of order that I thought the the old soup version had, you know? Huh. Yeah. I, I don't know, because it's, like, to me, it sounds like at, maybe at the very beginning of life, there was an orderliness built right on top of the orderliness of the planet itself. You are making me think, if I just, if I focus on the structure of the vent and the cell— uh, there is a sense of belonging in that. Like, the, every cell in our body looks a little like this planet. Maybe we don't matter, and the fact that we're here is random, but we do belong. From the day we arrived on this planet... In darkness and far from the sun There is more that we need Than just lightning can seed More chance that it would never be done And as we fight for our place here Competing through struggle and strife you can't anticipate who gets to dominate in the contest for the greatest in life. It's the chaos of life that confounds us all. Choose to spare our hope. Uh, guess that's it. This episode was reported by Latif Nasser, Matt Kilty, Heather Radke, Candice Wong, and me, Lulu Miller. It was produced by Matt Kilty and Simon Adler with sound and music from Matt Kilty, Simon Adler, and Jeremy Bloom. Bloom. 
big thanks to Alan Gafinski for creating that song and Alita Gafinski for belting the heck out of it. Uh, thanks also to Chuck Cheeseman, Sarah Luderman, Doug Irwin, Candace Wong. Thanks to David Sapkowski, whose book Rereading the Fossil we drew on for the story about Stephen Jay Gould and extinction. Uh, thank you to Nick Haddad, Ayana Johnson, Chris Klausmeyer, Laura Verhaeg, and Noelle Bolin. That'll do it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindunyana Sambindam, Matt Kielty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Anna Rosquet Paz, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Carolyn McCusker and Sarah Sonbach. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Adam Shibill. Hi, this is Albert in State College, Pennsylvania. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. 